Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. A Bible. You want a Bible? Or you give it to me? Daniel chapter 7, and looking at verses 9 and 10. It says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. Notice that for a minute, that his garment is white as snow, because we're going to come to white garments several times in the study today. And the first time we meet one, who's wearing it? The Father is wearing the white robe. And the hair of his head like the pure wool, and his throne was like the fiery flame. The Father, our Father God, does he have a head? Does he have hair? Then men were created in his, which is very apparent in Genesis. We've read one half of one verse. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. The title, yes, is the hour of the judgment. Then it says, His throne was like the fiery flame and His wheels as burning fire. We don't believe the Father has wheels. So what has wheels? The throne has wheels. And that is so relevant to true theology. If you're speaking to scoffers and gainsayers, and there are plenty of them, in this world. I'm trying to indulge you, Mr. Um, Risley, but it's going to take me a few minutes. Verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Let's just stop there. So the judgment happens in the presence of who? It happens in the presence of the Father. And there we have, it looks like angels are divided into two categories. There are a hundred million that are observing, and there are millions that are serving. Thousand thousands, that's millions. Ten thousand times ten thousand, that is a hundred million. Millions of serving angels involved in what process? Serving and serving in the process of judgment. A judgment that involves the books. Let's just stop for a minute. Books. Are books for the purpose of God's knowledge? Isn't that obvious? God, who is omniscient, the all-knowing one, doesn't need books. Then who are books for? Apparently, in this passage, for angels. Because books are being opened, and they're not being opened for the Father, so they're being opened for who? Then does it make sense that it would require so many? Because there's a lot of books, and angels are not omniscient, and it takes some time. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying?
This judgment is particularly interesting in point of time. It's easier to point out in point of time than the judgment in many other passages. Because in Daniel 7, you have your familiar Babylon, (laughs) Persia, Greece, Rome, the papacy. You have the papacy rise. It takes down three other powers. And then it persecutes the saints. And then you have this judgment. After this judgment, we read that the power of the papacy is taken away and its body is given to the burning flame. Listen to it carefully. Then where does the judgment happen? In point of time, it happens after the rise of the papacy but prior to the destruction of the papacy. And why prior? Because the judgment is the judgment that gives a verdict condemning the papacy to destruction. The judgment gives the verdict that condemns the papacy to destruction. So you can't have the papacy being destroyed prior to the verdict against it. In other words... If someone would ask, where do you get this idea? I would say you get it just by simply reading Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, you have the papacy, and then you have the judgment, and then you have the papacy given to the burning flame. You're going to say something, Mr. Leach? What does it say? All right. The court is situated, or the thrones are set up, you have. So wait, you said the judgment is the verdict of that condemns the papacy. It's very clear if you just read Daniel seven, and I'm, I want to go forward. So you might just have to do that in your own time to see it. In Daniel seven, the judgment. What's it there for? It's there to rule in favor of the persecuted and to condemn their persecutors. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter fourteen. So what are the main points that we've pointed out so far? From Daniel 7, that there's a judgment that happens in heaven. That it is for the benefit for millions of angels that the books are there. That the millions of angels are convening apparently as an act of vengeance or justice brought on by the persecution of the little horn power in Daniel 7. Revelation 14 and verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. There are those who say that the doctrine of the investigative judgment 
is a figment of Adventist imagination. What I want you to see is that in these two passages, there's nothing more clear than that there is a judgment that happens after much of earth's history is over, but prior to the end of earth's history. What happens after the judgment in Daniel 7? The execution of the sentence against the papacy. What happens after the judgment is announced in Revelation 14? The declaration that Babylon is fallen. The warning that men should not receive the mark of the beast. The statement that here are they that keep the commandments of God. And then finally, after all of that, the harvest. In point of time, Revelation 14 has a judgment that comes after much of verse history, described in Revelation 12 and 13, and yet prior to the very end of the world. That looks like the Adventist understanding of judgment and not the understanding found anywhere else. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look, I believe it's at verse 11. Does verse 11 say, and they cried with a loud voice? What does Revelation 6.11 say? Okay, so Revelation 6.10, and they, it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This is the fifth seal. The fifth seal, you have souls represented as being under the altar. They're crying out for what? And what kind of judgment in particular? To avenge their blood. They're crying out for it very apparently because they have been persecuted to death. Does this indicate that they're conscious? We shouldn't say so. Where are these souls represented as being? They're under the altar. That is not the abodes of bliss. More than that, this is not the only time that we find a cry for vengeance coming from dead people in the Bible. You find that the blood of Abel cries for vengeance. And if our question is, where does it cry from? The answer is in the Bible. It cries from the ground. That's where it was spilled. Then we find Hebrews mentions the same blood of Abel. And it says about Jesus that his blood speaks better things than that of Abel. If you did a study on innocent blood in the Bible, you'd find that the killing of innocent persons is a high crime in the sight of heaven and demands, itself demands, vengeance executed upon those who do it. In fact, the ferocity of the seven last plagues is based in Revelation partly upon this because of the shedding of innocent blood. What is apparent in Revelation 6 is that these men were righteous when they were slain. But notice, did they have a white robe when they were slain? They receive a white robe not when they die, 
but they receive a white robe sometime after they cry for vengeance. Let's read it. And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them, did they get their white robe at the second coming, at the very end of the world? Listen. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. They should do what? It indicates that they're not having an exciting time flying planet to planet or enjoying the flowers of heaven. What are these souls doing? They're resting. And they're going to rest for some time longer. So when do they get their white robe? It's while they're resting. Because when they get the white robe, they're told they should rest yet. What does the word yet mean? They've already been resting. They've been resting, they get a white robe, and they continue resting. They don't get the white robe at death, and they don't get it at resurrection. They get it at some point in the middle time. Sometime after the persecution in the Middle Ages, but what does it say? Rest for a season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So is there going to be another time of persecution after theirs? So when does the white robe given? There's a persecution in the Middle Ages that cries out for vengeance. Then there's white robes given to the righteous, and then there's going to be an end-time persecution of the righteous. And what are the first righteous dead doing in the meantime? They're resting. Listen, that is the Adventist doctrine, the investigative judgment. I do. The investigative judgment is, what does our doctrine say? It says that men aren't judged when they die. They're not judged when they're resurrected. They're judged late in earth's history in a judgment in heaven that involves books. And we've just read about this here. It's been spoken of. Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Revelation 3 is about the fifth church uh, for the fifth What's the word? Not categories, but epic, and our word for epic. The, the fifth church age, the church of Sardis, corresponding to the fifth seal that we just read about. Revelation 3 and verse 5, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in, what does it say? White raiment. Does he overcome first, or is he clothed in white raiment first? He overcomes first. That means he's a Christian on earth overcoming, and he doesn't have a white raiment yet. Listen, that means that this white raiment does not refer to the robe of righteousness that we're wearing right now as Christians. Does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? If I could say it, maybe it will be a complex idea, but it's not that complex. In the ju- right now on earth, I'm claiming Christ's righteousness to cover my sins. I'm wearing his robe of character, and if my profession, I just made a profession to you, if it is sincere and true, then my character will reveal the fruits of the Spirit in my life. That robe of character is a robe that I need to have. It proves the legitimacy of my Christian experience to you. But when I die, if I die, when my name comes up in judgment, 
when my sins are erased, that is when I receive the white robe that we're reading about here. That is, I'm, I'm clothed with a robe that covers all of my sins. That is, my sins are erased. But I'm getting ahead of myself in the Bible study. Let's read Revelation 3, verse 5. It says, He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Listen, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. So those books that are opened in the judgment, can names be blotted out of those books? You know, names can be blotted out of those books. And it looks like you have two options here. If you overcome, you get a white robe. But if you don't, your name is blotted out. What does it say? Jesus says, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So when the books are open, this judgment, who is Jesus confessing my name to? It's to the Father and to the angels. And this is done in connection with one of two events. Either he's confessing me as an overcomer, in which case I'm given a white robe. Or he confesses me as denying him, in which case my name is blotted out. All which things are at a time, sometime future from the fifth church age, like it was from the fifth seal. Look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Oh, by the way, I did find the handouts. Acts 3 and verse 19. Acts 3.19 reads, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. That's an interesting idea. We have sins recorded somewhere, but can those sins be erased? They can. Listen to what it says. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. When is the period of time when our sins are going to be erased? Is it the time when we repent? This passage doesn't connect the blotting out of our sins to the time of our repentance. It takes the sins of everybody and connects them to a future age, the time of refreshing. We call it the times of the latter rain. And do we have an idea of what part of verse history that's in? Listen, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. So when are our sins blotted out? It's in connection just prior to the time when Jesus is sent from heaven to earth. That's all very interesting, this idea of the blotting out of sins. Because what we read in Revelation 3.5 is that names can be blotted out. So here we have books, and either names can be blotted out or sins can be blotted out. Now if all my sins are blotted out, does it make sense that in a metaphor you would call that a white robe? It makes a lot of sense to me. If my sins are all blotted out because of the testimony of Jesus to the Father and the angels, that is a white robe, and it's the one described right here. What we've looked at is a number of examples of unambiguous evidence in favor of the Adventist investigative judgment. Turn in your Bibles to...
Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 and 14. Mr. Little, I'm going to give you this study at the end of the class. It's too complicated to give it to you right now. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of men. This is an interesting statement. It says that we are to keep God's commandments, and then it gives a reason. It gives two. It says, first, for this is the duty. And then it says, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So what is being evaluated in the judgment? It's every work. Every work we've done. Good works, bad works, and secret works are being evaluated in the judgment. And is there a way to live in view of the judgment? That's it. Fear God and keep His commandments. It's very clear in Ecclesiastes. In view of the judgment, we're to keep His commandments. Now this passage is interesting because it's so similar to Revelation 14, 6-12. The primary difference between Revelation 14 and Ecclesiastes 12 is that Ecclesiastes 12 places the judgment in the future and Revelation 14 places it in the present. That is, Ecclesiastes 12 says, He's going to judge us, therefore fear God and keep His commandments. Revelation 14 says that he's judging us now. Therefore, fear God, and here are they that keep his commandments. One is future, one is present, but it's the same idea. Look at Romans chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 12 through 16. Romans 2 and verses 12 through 16. But truly we're only going to observe a few phrases in there. I think the phrase I want you to notice is probably in verse 13. You see, as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. It's just before the parentheses in verse 14. As many as have sinned in the law shall be judged, what does it say? So here we know there's a judgment in heaven. We know books are being opened. We know it's for the benefit of the angels. And what are we going to be compared to in the judgment? It's to the law. Well, does that make sense in view of what we read in Ecclesiastes? That's in verse 12. All right, so Ecclesiastes said that we are to keep the commandments because there is a judgment coming. Romans 2 says that we're going to be judged by the law. It makes sense. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. So who is it that is justified in the judgment? The doers are justified in the judgment, but pay attention. When are they justified? They're justified in the judgment. When did they get a white robe in Revelation 3.5? It was in the judgment. When did they get a... When were their sins blotted out in Acts 3? It was in the judgment. It's very clear. They're doers of the law first and they're justified later. Now this isn't the way we think of justification. If I could say this idea as I understand it, 
The justification that I receive when I ask God for forgiveness is a provisional justification. The justification I received this morning when I gave my life to Jesus and asked him to forgive my sins was provisional. The condition of it holding on is that I'm faithful to the end. And what does the judgment evaluate? Whether I have been faithful to the end. But I'm getting ahead of myself because it's right here in Romans 2. We, well, I think we cited it in an earlier passage. That What does it say around verse 15? Their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And then verse 16 says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. Have we read about him judging the secrets of men before? We read about that in Ecclesiastes. Here we're told it's part of the gospel. According to my gospel. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. And we're looking at verse 34. Exodus 32. And we're looking at verse 34. Can you pass that to William? We're about on page 3, William. Exodus 32, verse 34. This is just after Moses has pleaded with God to forgive the people. And then he said in verse 32, he said, And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which you have written. Then God comes back and responds that he has pardoned the people. But as far as blotting Moses out, he makes no such agreement. And then he indicates, them that sin against me will I blot out of the book. Listen, who's blotted out of the book? It's those that sin against God. It's as clear as the day. God introduces this idea in Exodus by saying that people can be blotted out of the book. And who's blotted out? It's the sinners. Now that's bad news because we all are sinners. And this is the significance of that white robe we've been reading about. When Jesus confesses me before the Father and the angels, my sins are blotted out and I'm given a white robe. Then, and only because of that, my name is not blotted out of the book. Whose name is blotted out of the book? Those that sin. Whose name is not blotted out of the book? Those that have a white robe. I have your hand out back. I thought I had a complete one, so I gave William it and found out I didn't have it. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. 
and verse 8. Okay, you can have that. Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. It says, Also I say unto you, Whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. This verse, at this point in our study, should offer nothing new to us except for a confirmation of what's gone before. But who is the confession made for in this verse? Verse 8. Okay, yeah, it's in favor of those who confess Christ. And who is it made before? It's made before the angels. It doesn't mention the Father here. Look at verse 9. But he who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. Of course, we read in Revelation 3 that he confesses us before the Father, but the Father has set this to his seal, that he knows those that are his. What's very apparent in Luke 8 is what we could infer from the other passages. The judgment in heaven is for the angels. The angels are going to find out, as Jesus confesses or denies, whether or not we are going to be in heaven or not. The angels are observing this thing. It's for them to see the record books themselves and they're going to watch sins blotted out or names blotted out. Some people have been confused because of what they find in Revelation 20. I'll include myself in that some people. Revelation 20 was very confusing to me for a long part of my Christian experience. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 20. Revelation 20 contains what we call the millennium in verses 4 through 6. After the millennium in verses 7 through 10, you have the surrounding of the city and the lake of fire. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire in verse 10. Looking at verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. Where is this great, great white throne being set? It doesn't look like it's being set in heaven. It's being set somewhere close enough to earth where it's having an impact on geological processes here. Does that differ, differ somewhat from the judgment we read about in Revelation 7? The one referred to in Luke 8 and Revelation 3? All the events we've read about thus far happen in heaven. But this one's happening right here on terra not so firma. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged according to their works by the signs which were written in the books. Who's here witnessing this judgment? We're going to have to say the once dead, but they're dead no longer. Earlier in the same chapter it said, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were over. And here they are standing. They're being judged out of the things written in the books. But we don't read here about anything like intercession. We don't read here about any names being blotted out or sins being blotted out. Verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. You don't read about any mercy here. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The great white throne judgment is similar to the judgment we've read about in that people are judged out of the books. But it's different in a number of respects. Men are warned about the judgment going on in heaven while it's happening. The judgment that's for the angels happens while we're alive here and we're told about it. Why are we told about it? Because there's time to get our lives straight while the judgment's ongoing. But is there time to get your life straight when the great white throne judgment happens? This is a judgment that is not mixed with mercy. And who's this judgment for? Very apparently, this judgment is for the lost. It's when the lost get to see the record of their own lives. Then that has nearly every being in the universe seen the books. All the angels, all the lost, the Father and the Son, everyone except the righteous. Do they get to see the books? Look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who's the judgment given to? The judgment here is committed to the righteous. Here they are with Christ in heaven for a thousand years and they're going over the books. So what is the teaching on the Bible on these things? It's that everyone sees the books. The righteous see them in the thousand years. The wicked at the conclusion of the thousand years. The angels currently... And when we're looking at them during the thousand years, are we looking at only the record of human life? What did 1 Corinthians 6 say? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? Meaning those wicked ones in particular. Turn to 
Turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. Judging Angels, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, it probably is, verse 3, we're turning to Jude, and we're looking at verse 14. Jude verse 14 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. I just want to add a word about the book of Enoch. The Bible never mentions it. For all we know, Enoch said these things. We have no record of a book being carried on the ark. And if you find a book of Enoch that includes this passage, you should know that the easiest thing to do if you wanted to write a pseudographical book and pretend it was Scripture would be to write the book of Enoch and quote this in it. And to fall for such a lame trick would be an easy... It wouldn't speak well of your critical thinking. That's a side point. It's in my mind because I've been reading emails by people whose critical thinking was defective in that respect. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all. And to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If we ask the question, what is Jesus coming for? One thing he's coming for is to redeem his own and to take us back to heaven. But there's something else he's coming for, and what's that? He's coming for judgment, and he's not coming to condemn those who still claim their innocence. He's coming to convince them. He's coming for judgment, and he's not coming to destroy those who still claim their innocence. He's coming to convince them of their ungodliness. If we ask the question, is this speaking about his second coming or his third coming? There's an answer why it's not so clear in the passage. And that answer is that what he does at those two comings is so similar that this passage would be true, whichever one you applied it to. Do we have any biblical evidence that he convinces the ungodly of their ungodly deeds when he returns the first time? We do. Matthew 25, Matthew 7. He, we heard about it in prayer meeting. In Matthew 25, he lets them know, you have not been living out the love that I have demonstrated to you. And as verily as you have not done kind things to the least of these, you have not done it unto me. He convinces the ungodly that they're ungodly. Are they convinced before he convinces them? Very apparently, they de they're in denial. In Matthew 7, are they convinced before he convinces them? 
Very apparently, they're in denial. They say, Lord, Lord, have we not in your name done all these wonderful works? When he comes back, he could just condemn all those people in denial and just destroy them in their state of denial. But this is not what he's doing. Our God is convincing the ungodly of their ungodly deeds. And for this, the books of record are opened for them after the thousand years. And so is fulfilled that statement of Paul, and so every knee shall bow. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After this passage, I'm going to summarize and be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 21. It says, For since by man came death, by man, that is Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Is it only the righteous that are made alive? You know, the wicked are made alive too. For why, you might ask. Because when they died, they were not convinced of their ungodly deeds. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Verse 24, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So what's the order of events? While life is going on here on earth, after the persecution of the Middle Ages, while innocent blood is calling out for justice, angels in heaven are there as Christ individually confesses or denies professed Christians. Does he confess them all? Does he deny them all? No, he confesses and he denies. And one large body of those who professed him, but who were persecutors of their brethren, he denies them in the judgment. That happens in heaven, but as he confesses and denies, if he confesses them, they receive white robes and their sins are blotted out. But if he denies them, then they have sins left. And anyone whose sin is left, their name is blotted from the book of life. We didn't read Daniel 12, but Daniel 12 says when that process is over, then there is a time of trouble here on earth, the seven last plagues it's referring to. And who is destroyed in the seven last plagues? Those whose names are not found written in the book of life. Then Christ comes back. And those who are, righteous, who are wicked and have not died yet, he convinces them of their ungodly, need, ungodly deeds before they're destroyed with the presence of his coming. Then during the thousand years, the books are opened for 
the righteous. They judge men and they judge angels. They're not judging each other. They're judging those whose names are not written in the book of life. There's no way to judge those whose names are written in the book of life because the record of their lives has been erased. Yes. Exactly. At the end of the thousand years, everyone is raised. The wicked dead are raised. And there you have a great white throne judgment. They're all before him. The books are open. They all see. And every one of them is convinced. We gather from the statement that every knee shall bow, that they're going to be convinced to that extent that they're willing to bow to him. Then they're destroyed in the lake of fire. All enemies are put down. And the last enemy destroyed is the enemy of death that's the thorough doctrine of the Adventist investigative judgment nowhere does it imply ignorance on the part of God or on the part of Jesus everywhere implies that God is interested in being vindicated for his fairness and his righteous judgments when the seven last plagues start you remember that cry that the angels in heaven give they say righteous so God art thou for you have judged thus And they say, great and marvelous are thy ways, O King of saints. Do you remember why? Just and true. Because your judgments are made manifest. That is, the fairness and righteousness of God has been made apparent to all the angels. They see it. And before the final judgments are inflicted on the wicked, they also see it. Revelation chapter 15, the verse number I don't know, but it's a short chapter. Verse 3 and 4. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would take the truth presented here and use it to confirm in our hearts your fairness, your kindness, your openness to evaluation. Prepare us to receive the white robe that's of more consequence than any other. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.